We continue in the sermon series through the book of the Acts of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of his apostles. Acts chapter 18, we'll pick up the reading at verse 18 from where we left off last Lord's Day. This reading that will continue into chapter 19 will bring to conclusion Paul's second missionary journey and then we'll see him embark on his third missionary journey. So that's the historical context here uh, as Paul leaves Corinth and makes his way uh, then back to Ephesus. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Father, we rejoice in your greatness, in your goodness, in your truth, and in your love for us. We thank you that you have given to us Jesus, your Son, to be our Savior and our King. And we pray in his name that you would send forth through Jesus the presence and power of the Holy Spirit now to illumine our minds spiritually, to open our hearts. Speak, O Lord, that your servants may hear and respond in faith to the glory of your name. Amen. Acts chapter 18, beginning at verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. It is written. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrae, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them, Priscilla and Aquila, there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea on the coast of Judea, he went up and greeted the church, that is in Jerusalem, and then went down to Antioch in Syria. After spending some time there, He departed and now begins the third missionary journey. He departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples in the places where he had been in his first two journeys. Now a little shift in the camera angle as it were. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that would be where Corinth is, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples in Corinth to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, modern-day Turkey, and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, 
No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. That is John the Baptist. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, a lecture hall in Ephesus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, Asia Minor, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, we're going to focus this morning primarily uh, on, in Acts 19 and the events that are recorded there with the Apostle Paul coming upon these 12 disciples. More on that later in Ephesus. But before we do that, I want to go back. I'm going back to last Sunday's sermon. I'm going back to the last point of last Sunday's sermon and add a word of encouragement. Now, the key verse in the previous passage, that, uh, that last point of last Sunday's sermon, is Acts 18.10, in which Jesus appears to Paul in a vision in Corinth and says to him, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, Jesus told Paul that there were many people in Corinth who were going to believe the gospel because God the Father had already chosen them and given them to Jesus and Jesus had already died for them and the only thing remaining was for the Holy Spirit to apply that work of, that, of, their, that work of salvation to their lives through the preaching of the gospel. And it was Paul's responsibility to go and preach the gospel so that the elect would be saved and come to Christ in faith. Now, I said in that part of the sermon that you and I have no idea, no idea how many people there are out there right now who are waiting for the Lord to enter their lives. They just don't know it yet. You and I have no idea how many people there are out there who are among God's elect. They just don't know it yet. And you may be the person whom the Holy Spirit uses to in introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
if you are willing and faithful and obedient to him as his witness. Here's a real life example, and this is the reason I decided to go back to this point, okay? I preached that sermon on Sunday. On Monday, I had a conversation with a friend from out of town, about my age, a little bit older. He became a Christian just three or four years ago. Here's how it happened. He was single, and he met a single lady. And there was a mutual interest in developing the relationship. But she told him, I just want you to know, my heart belongs to Jesus. I am a Christian. Okay, how about that for taking the relationship to the next level? (laughs) And he replied, What does it mean to believe in Christ? I don't know what it means to be a Christian. She spoke briefly about her faith in Jesus. And then she gave him a book. She followed up by giving him a book. I I think it was Follow Me by David Platt. He read it. And by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, He was converted, and now he's living as a joyful Christian, and he has bought literally hundreds of those books to give away. That's his strategy, point number one from last Sunday, strategy, but do you see? The lady friend had no idea how he was going to respond. But she was willing to be a witness. And the angels in heaven rejoiced over this salvation. Okay, I know. Now you're wondering, so I'll go ahead and tell you. Today, they are really good friends. And they both give thanks to God that their mutual interest led to his salvation. Now, are you willing to be a witness in your own natural, simple way? You know what? People are very, very concerned these days about the state of the nation and the world, and they're fearful about what the future might look like. You hear it all the time. When someone expresses that anxiety or that anger, don't respond with anxiety and anger. You might just offer a simple statement of faith such as, Jesus is Lord, his kingdom is forever, and my hope is in him. Or you might say, you might say, yes, you know, we've rejected God's goodness and we're suffering the consequences. And our only hope is to return to the truth of God's word and to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That might plant a seed. There might be more conversation. 
You really believe that? Oh, yeah. I really believe that. Okay, it's summer, and maybe you'll be traveling. Oh, take some of your back issues of Table Talk magazine. Take extra copies of Table Talk from the Narthex today. Just go ahead. Take them. Leave copies in the airport, in the hotel breakfast area, the waiting area of a restaurant. Doesn't matter. You never know who might pick it up and read it and what the result might be. When someone shares with you the hardships he or she is experiencing, how about just saying, would you like for me to say a prayer for you right now? In a world of bad news, be a bearer of good news. In a world of fear, spread cheer the good cheer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has overcome the world. He has conquered death, and he has destroyed the power of the devil. You never know how a simple word from you might be used by the Holy Spirit to lead a lost soul to Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. I have many in this city who are my people. And you'll have plenty of opportunity in the week to come. So you just let me know how it goes. Okay? All right. Now that was last Sunday's sermon. <laughs> we got to do today's sermon. Ready? We're going to put the passage in broad historical context. See the big picture. The bottom line is that after more than 18 months in Corinth, Paul concluded his second missionary journey by reporting back to the churches in Jerusalem and Antioch of Syria from where he had been sent out. Then, verse 23, Paul set out on his third missionary journey, which eventually took him back to Ephesus. Now, Dr. Luke tells us that there was a man named Apollos, a Jewish believer in Christ who was in Ephesus. And verse 24 describes him as an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Apollos became a leader in the early church, and Paul mentions him very positively in his first letter to the Corinthians and also his letter to Titus. Now, verse 25 says that Apollos taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. John the Baptist. He didn't have the whole picture. Uh, and so the scripture says that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside. Nice. They took him aside privately and explained to him the way of God more accurately. But let's just think about what these verses are saying. Apollos was, quote, an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, who taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But Priscilla and Aquila explain the way of God more accurately to him. In other words, at this point, Apollos was a very effective witness for Jesus. Even though he didn't know everything. Even though he was still learning. Even though he, he needed more instruction on some points. So what's the point for us? None of us knows everything about the Bible. Or the Christian faith. None of us can answer every possible question that might arise. 
Maybe we're a little fuzzy about some things, okay. But those imperfections didn't keep Apollos from speaking for the Lord, and they shouldn't keep you from speaking for the Lord either. You know the Lord, the Savior of your heart. You know the basics of the gospel. You can share that simply, naturally with others. Apollos went on from Ephesus to Corinth where he helped to strengthen the church. And then meanwhile, Paul came to Ephesus. Now here's where the passage gets a little difficult, gets a little tricky. get some interesting uh, scholarly difference of perspective on all this. So here we go. 19.1 says that in Ephesus, Paul found some disciples. Well, there's some scholarly disagreement about who exactly these disciples were. But it's clear that they were not yet members of the new church in Ephesus. Some scholars think that the word disciples here must mean disciples of John the Baptist, not disciples of Jesus. It's hard to know. And the way in which this account is written, it seems as though we are, we're really jumping into the middle of Paul's conversation with them. I, I think that Luke has given us a condensed version of the conversation, a little snapshot of the scene between Paul and these disciples. Because evidently, Paul realized that there was something lacking in their discipleship. And so he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they replied, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul must have realized that something was askew. And, and so he asked them, into what then were you baptized? And they replied, into John's baptism. Ah, oh. Then Paul understood. These men were disciples only in the sense that they had heard the teaching of John the Baptist and received his baptism, which was a baptism of purification for preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Maybe these were Gentiles who had heard a little bit of Apollo's teaching in Ephesus before Aquila and Priscilla had helped him learn more and teach more accurately. But in any case, and at any point, Paul told them the complete gospel message, that Jesus is the one to whom John the Baptist pointed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After hearing this, believing the gospel, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Okay. Now, there are a few things to note here. Uh, first, with reference to the Paul's laying on of hands and the speaking in tongues and prophesying, this is the first time that... Um, the speaking in tongues occurs in Paul's ministry in his missionary journeys. It's never occurred before. And it's likely that this occurred here in this way as a confirmation of the apostolic authority of Paul in his mission to the Gentiles of the first century. 
Because after he left Corinth, there was a lot of scuttlebutt about whether Paul was really a true apostle or whether he was the real thing, you know, all of that. And so the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in this way, in this um, extraordinary way, uh, with the speaking in tongues, it was probably a confirmation of Paul's apostolic authority. It's also, by the way, the last time that speaking in tongues is recorded in the book of Acts. And that probably indicates that moving out from the day of Pentecost uh, in Jerusalem, that the Holy Spirit's outpouring, it was, it was signified by this last final um, act that the, the Spirit of God had been poured out upon all flesh, peoples of all nations and all languages re without regard to socioeconomic status or etc. The Holy Spirit, which is the case today, the Holy Spirit has been poured out from heaven for people of all nations, ethnicities, and languages. Hence, the first century phenomena of speaking in tongues was a sign that by His blood, Jesus Christ ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. All right. And, and you know, they were speaking an unknown language, which would be to say that at that time, there were, it was a sign that God's Spirit was poured out on all people, including those who are, would be elsewhere and speaking in terms of a, a language not yet known by the apostles. But we have to place this all in its historical context. Now, there was also some confusion or lack of understanding at first in the minds of these disciples. Paul had to straighten it out. And also bear in mind, again, that what we have in this passage is really a condensed, abbreviated, snapshot account of everything that Paul said. And my point in saying this is, is this. So here's, your, here's a practical point. Here's a practical payoff. You apply it to your Bible study. An abbreviated narrative historical account of what was said and what happened under unusual circumstances is not a passage on which to build doctrinal truths. Let me say that again. An abbreviated narrative account of, of what was said and what happened under unusual circumstances is not a passage on which to build doctrinal truths. Uh, an abbreviated narrative account such as this relating to one unusual incident that happened only one time on one of Paul's missionary journeys is not a passage from which we should try to derive ongoing normative experiences of the Christian life. In other words, we shouldn't think that what happened to this group of men in the first century in Ephesus is normative or, or should be the case for all Christians everywhere. But some Christian groups do. Okay, are you tuned in? Are you hanging in here with me? Okay. So, for example, some Christians, our brothers and sisters, some in Pentecostalism, some in the charismatic movement, not all, but some, read this passage and say, 
See, here were some disciples, wrongly, I think, wrongly assuming that these disciples were already truly Christian disciples, which is not the case when you read the passage. But anyway, they say, see, here were some disciples who had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So they say, you see, some Christians have received the Holy Spirit, but some haven't, they say. Listen carefully, they say, there are two kinds of Christians. Those who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit and those who haven't. And they say, they say, if you're a Christian but you haven't received the second blessing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then you need to ask for that and seek it in order to be, you know, a full Christian, just like in Acts 19. And, and they say, the sign of receiving the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. You ever heard that? I got a few nods of the head. Okay? All right. Well, I want to reiterate the fact, first of all, that not everybody, no, not everybody in the charismatic movement would say that. No. Not everybody in the charismatic movement believes in the second blessing upon some Christians. And not all charismatics believe that speaking in tongues is the necessary proof of having received the Holy Spirit. But, you know, it, that teaching is out there and you may have heard it. Well, again, let's think about our principles of Bible study. The problem arises from trying to derive doctrines and trying to define normative Christian experience from a narrative passage such as this one in which extraordinary and non-normative things are happening due to the historical context of the first century. But when you read the letters of Paul and Peter and the other letters in the New Testament in which the apostles in their letters are very clearly teaching doctrine and giving instruction about living the Christian life, you will not read one verse about a so-called second blessing of the Holy Spirit. It's not there. You will not find any, any verse in the clear, systematic teaching of the New Testament letters which says that speaking in tongues is the proof of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not there. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul is very clear that all true believers in Christ have, yes, been baptized in one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but not all believers speak in tongues. All right, now, let's just take that as a topic for the rest of the sermon here. What does the Scripture say about the baptism of or with the Holy Spirit? That phrase comes from what John the Baptist said about Jesus. He who is coming after me is mightier, mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Fire being a 
a symbol of power and purification and uh, energy. All right, so there it is. It's biblical. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to the Christian life. In fact, there is no Christian life apart from the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It is not a second blessing for some Christians. Every true believer in Christ has been baptized with, by, or in the Holy Spirit. It's how we become true believers. It's the only way we become true believers. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the supernatural, life-giving, life-quickening work of the Holy Spirit in the depths of our being by which we are born again or born from above or born of the Spirit. All means the same thing. All of those expressions were words of Jesus when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless a man is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. It is the supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit, by which we are brought out of our spiritual death. Death in trespasses and sins, by which we are convicted of our sins. We, we see our sins for what they are, by which our eyes are opened and we see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior, and by which we see the beauty, the glory, the power, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior. And when we truly see our need of Jesus, when we see Him as our only hope, we run to Him in faith and with thanksgiving. Now, brothers and sisters, that miracle can happen only by the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit, illuminating our darkened minds with the light of spiritual truth renewing our wills so that our wills are delivered from the oppressive slavery to sin and our wills are set free. They become truly free to live in happy and grateful obedience to the Word of God. The, the baptism of the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart, a new mind, a renewed will, a freed will, a new desire in our soul to live in communion with the true and living God instead of living in rebellion against Him. That's a miracle. The baptism of the Holy Spirit fills our hearts with the love of God and grants us the assurance that we are children of God the Father, by adoption, through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
I don't know what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? You're a child of the Father by adoption, through faith in Jesus Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a supernatural work of sovereign grace. And it is a reality in the life of every true Christian. And the real proof of it is not in any external manifestation of extraordinary phenomena. The real proof of it is a heart that is tender toward God. A heart with a desire to please Him. A conscience that is sensitive to, aware of, and offended by the ugliness of our own personal sins. A will that is willing. A will that is willing to fight the fight against those personal sins. A will that is willing to deny self. A will that is willing to serve others. In the name of Jesus, a heart of humility before God, a soul that is committed to love our neighbors in acts of goodness and mercy in accordance with God's word, and a real desire to grow in the knowledge of God's word, a desire to know the one who has loved you with an everlasting love and a desire to worship Him in spirit and in truth with your your whole heart and from your inmost being. Because when the baptism of the Holy Spirit is real, there will be real evidence in our lives, transformed lives. Lives which are reflecting the life of Jesus Christ in thought, word, and deed. Lives which bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Which, by the way, is a personality profile of the Lord Jesus which is the whole point of the infilling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, namely the reproduction of the life of Jesus in the lives of His redeemed people. That's what it means to be a Christian. The word Christ means the anointed one. Christian means we are little anointed ones because we have the Spirit of Christ so that we might live more nearly the life of Christ. And now, do I need to say it? This is quite different from a merely external Christianity of moralism, pretty goodness, keep it between the ditches, or ritualism, or niceness, or dress up, show up, check the box, churchianity, with no real love for Jesus or commitment to live for Him. In this passage, there were some questions about baptism. 
baptism of John, and then Christian baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit as Jesus instructed. So we might want to ask the question, what's the relationship between the sacrament of baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, the external, admission, external administration of the sacrament of baptism does not cause, does not bring about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But it's still important because the external administration of the sacrament of baptism points to the need for the internal baptism of the Holy Spirit. It points to the need for regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And it visibly shows us the promise of the gospel. The forgiveness of our sins by the blood of Christ and the renewal of our lives by the Holy Spirit. Our confession states that the efficacy of the sacrament of baptism is not tied to the moment at which it is administered. But there's still a link because when we are born again by the Spirit, and when we come to Jesus Christ in true repentance and faith with joy and thanksgiving, then that external sacrament of baptism is confirmed in our lives, and we know that the external symbol has become an internal personal reality born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. And I would add, empowered to be a witness. Do you have a new life because Jesus is in your life? There's somebody out there today who's waiting, who's dying to hear that he or she can have a new life, too, in Jesus. Jesus said, Do not be afraid. I am with you. Go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I have many in this city who are my people. Let's go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ who in great love for us, in obedience to you, offered himself up unto death on a cross so that we might live forever. Come, Holy Spirit. Breathe on us, breath of God. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage. 
Grant us faithful joy to live as your witnesses. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, now let us say what we believe. God has spoken to us. Let us stand and we say amen to that in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism number one. Dearly beloved Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of his own precious blood, he has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready 